Father, at Christmas, we remember something of our helplessness, our inability to know you without your help, without your condescension, without you lowering yourself, taking on flesh in the form of your Son. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for being prepared to do that for us. Thank you that you came from the Father, full of grace and truth. I pray that as we look at these familiar verses this morning, pray that in the midst of all our Christmas organisation and excitement and frustration and hassle, pray that you might speak to us. Might we hear your voice, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. True story, apparently it's mid-1903, and after many, many failed attempts, many years, the Wright brothers, Orville and Wilbur, were finally successful in getting their flying machine off the ground and into the air. And of course, it changed the world forever. They were thrilled about it, and as we all would, they wanted to tell somebody what had happened. So they'd send a telegraph to their sister, Catherine. The telegraph says this, it says, We have actually flown 120 feet. We will be home for Christmas. Amazing news, Catherine is thrilled. She hurries to the editor of the local newspaper, and she shows him the message. And he glances down and he reads it. And he says, ah, that's nice, they'll be back for Christmas. Do you see, they'd missed the total point of the message, though. For the first time in human history, somebody had flown. It had worked. Years and years of labor and engineering, and, but he's missed the point. He's missed the point of the message and how incredibly easy it can be at Christmas, very often, to focus in on the wrong thing, to miss the point of the message. Don't you find that at Christmas? That the main thing so easily stops being the main thing? There was a new study just six days ago showing that Christmas Eve at 10pm is the most likely time for a heart attack. What does that tell you about us? What does that tell you about Christmas? It all gets so stressful and busy as you try and coordinate the Christmas dinner. Or as you try and put on Christmas events as a church leader. Or as you're endlessly hoovering up needles from the Christmas tree. As you're trying to coordinate the internet deliveries to make sure somebody's in so it doesn't go to the packing centre. Or to try and get the perfect present for that person you just struggle to buy for. Or you get duped into thinking, if I get this, then this will make me happy. This will be what I need. Or you beautifully wrap the present up in Christmas paper. And how long does it last? About three seconds before you scrumple it up and put it into the recycling bag for Boxing Day. What are you hoping for this Christmas? How is your Christmas preparation turning out? It's a huge industry, isn't it, Christmas? Marketers are well aware of the, the fact that our hearts, as Martin Luther would put it, are, are idle factories. And we form and we fixate upon these things that we think will provide. Things to worship, whether they be gifts or whether they be the perfect Christmas experience, the perfect Christmas lunch. 
And so to harness maximum pester power, the advertising push for Christmas begins in about mid-August. If I had a pound for each time I heard, can I have that for Christmas in my house, I would be a far richer man. Studies show on average we will spend £821.25 for family on presents and food and decorations and all the trimmings and everything else which in reality for many would just mean more debt. Some of you are thinking, how can you spend 821 pounds? Some of you are thinking, is that all? What were you hoping for at Christmas? Because John knows what we need for Christmas. Have a look down at verse 14. The last little bit. The glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father full of grace and truth. What do we need for Christmas? Ultimately, foundationally, we need him. God gives us himself. The trajectory of the Bible and the promise of Christmas is that Jesus is the present we need this Christmas. Maybe some of us are thinking, well, what's he come for? What does he want with us? We're nervous, we're suspicious. Has he come to to suck the life out of life? Has he come to ruin our fun and get in the way and, and look over our shoulders and make demands of us? Why has the sun come? Actually, it's the opposite. He's not come to suck the life out of life. He has come to give us real life. The story of John 1 so far is a story of God coming to earth, not to tell us what to do, but to come and be a light in the darkness, as Dave was telling us last week, week before last, as Charlie was explaining to the kids with the Advent candle. It's a dark world, and he's come to be light. He's come to deal with the the reality of our, our rebellion, the consequences of our rebellion and our walking out on him. It's the story of the eternal word of God taking on flesh, luring himself, walking among us. In the right place, at the right time, you could see him. You could mark it on a map and see him. You could put it in your diary and see him. And God lowers himself and condescends himself to become what we are. C.S. Lewis Um, tries to help us grasp something of the enormity of this. And I thought for the sake of Frodo, um, I would use this example because he asks whether we might be willing to become a dog. He says this. He says, lying at your feet is a dog. Imagine for the moment that your dog and every dog is in deep distress. He clarifies, some of us love dogs very much. If it would help all the dogs in the world to become like men, would you be willing to become a dog, says C.S. Lewis. Slightly enigmatic. Would you put down your human nature? Would you leave your loved ones and your jobs and your hobbies and your art, your literature, your music, and you choose, instead of the intimate communion with your spouse, to become the poor substitute of looking into your beloved's face and wagging your tail, unable to speak or smile? Well, so he says, Christ, by becoming man, limits himself. He limits the thing which to him is the most precious thing in the world, his, his unhampered, unhindered communion with the Father. That's a tiny bit of what it was like 
for the Lord Jesus to take on flesh and become like one of us. Um, I was reading a, a devotional this morning from Charles Spurgeon, which many of you will have, or who many of you will have no, known or heard of. Um, he said this, and I've, I will quote it for you. I've got a copy on here. He, he's imagining the time when the Lord Jesus came from heaven to earth. He said this, He said, go, saith the Father, and thy Father's blessings on thy head. Then comes the unrobing. How do angels crowd around to see the Son of God take off his robes? He laid aside his crown. He said, my Father, I am Lord over all, blessed forever, but I will lay my crown aside and be as mortal men are. He strips himself of his bright vest of glory. Father, he says, I will wear a robe of clay just as men were. Then he takes off all those jewels wherewith he was glorified. He he lays aside his starry mantles and robes of light to dress himself in the simple garments of the peasant of Galilee. What a solemn disrobing that must have been, he says. And next, can you picture the dismissal? The angels attend the Savior through the streets until they approach the doors when an angel cries, Lift up your heads, O ye gates, and be lifted up, ye everlasting doors, and let the King of glory through. I think the angels must have wept when they lost the company of Jesus, when the Son of Heaven bereaved them of all his light. But they went after him, they descended with him, and when his spirit entered into flesh and he became a babe, he was attended by that mighty host of angels who, after they had been with him to Bethlehem's manger and seen him safely laid on his mother's breast, in their journey upwards appeared to the shepherds and told them that he was born King of the Jews. The Father sent him. Contemplate that subject. Let your soul get hold of it, and in every period of his life, think that he suffered what the Father willed, that every step of his life was marked with the great approval of the great I am. Jesus lowers himself. He takes on flesh. He becomes a man. That we might all become part of his family that we might become sons of God in one sense. And for John, it is jaw-droppingly exciting. It is, it is new. We're meant to gasp. And yet, by the language he uses, he wants us to see as well that, in a sense, this was where the Bible had all been going. This is what we should have expected. The, the promise of Emmanuel, the promise of God with us, among his people once again, that has been the direction of travel. In a sense, from... Well, not day one, but a little bit after. So have a look at verse 14 with me. Again, the the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. You might literally know that that that, that is actually Jesus tabernacled among us. And we think it sounds a bit weird. It's kind of a niche camping phrase, sort of thing you need for Duke of Edinburgh. But, But actually what John does is he makes up a word to explain something. He's making a deliberate point, a theological point for us. Thousands of years before, God had rescued his people when they were slaves in Egypt, taken them, do you remember, through the wilderness, through the desert, on the way to the promised land, led by Moses. But on their way there, he is with them. At the heart of the people of God, he is among them. Each night in the center of the camp, right in the middle is this special tent, the the tabernacle, the tent of meeting. There is God dwelling in the midst of his people, at the heart of their community, at the heart of their lives. 
And yet listen to what happens when Moses makes this tabernacle tent of meeting. Actually, Dave referred to it in the Leviticus series in the evenings this last term. So then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. See, God's glory, his brilliance, his majesty, his power, so amazing even that, that you couldn't be in the same place as him. That there's a relationship, but there's a, a distance. And yet here, verse 14, here is the word become flesh, tabernacling among his people. And as you look at him, you see something of the glory of God now. We have seen his glory. The glory of the one and only Son. And again, that glory word is a loaded word. It represents God's presence. And it hadn't really been in the land since the exile from Babylon, hundreds of years before. Do you remember, they've built the city of Jerusalem again. They've, they've kind of rebuilt the temple but there's been no glory. As the temple is dedicated, there's no obvious presence of God among his people until, until verse 14, until now. Here is God dwelling among his people again. Where do you meet with him now? You don't meet with him in, in a temple or a tabernacle. Now you meet him in a person. A person called Jesus, one who comes with grace and truth. And John says to us, that is what we need at Christmas. Maybe you're here and you're um, not a believer and you're thinking, well, why do I need that? Why do I need that the most, John? God? What are you saying? Well, the thing is, God is not like the proverbial Santa for grown-ups. The one who, who watches whatever we do, and if we're good, he gives us nice stuff, and if we're bad, he gives us coal. Now, that's not what the Bible says at all our God is like. The Bible will say our God is a God of grace, who, who is kind even when we don't deserve it, who is patient even when we keep forgetting him and doing things our own way, and... He's generous even when we're stingy or greedy. And when we treat him like an emergency life mechanic, as we so often do, then he is still there. His, his patience is not an eternal patience, but he is slow to anger. He is abounding in love. And actually, that verse 14 word of grace is a key word when it comes to John. If you read right through the, the book, you'll see this grace in action. The word becomes flesh, and then that word who made, who made flesh dies on a cross. And he dies on a cross so that God's loving and just and righteous anger that we deserve for walking out on him falls on him instead of us. That, that, is, why, that is why Jesus needs to be at the heart of our Christmas. Because he offers us the relationship that we need. He offers us a new family. He offers us himself. He offers us life. And maybe we're thinking, well, that sounds amazing. That is far better than the Harry Potter Lego Hogwarts set or whatever it is on your list. This sounds like a no-brainer. 
I, I see something of why I need him. And yet the surprise from the passage is this. The surprise is that many do not recognize him or receive him. Have a look again at verse 10 to 11. He, that is Jesus, was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. You see, when Dave was chatting to us a couple of weeks ago, we saw a lot of conflict in those verses. There, there was a conflict between light and darkness. Here, there is more conflict because, because those who ought to have recognized him do not. In a sense, we, we're perhaps not surprised. The rebellion that means we turned our backs on God initially means that we do not recognize the one who made us now and our need of him. And you will know something of that as you wander your way through your week, perhaps conversations you've had with people, perhaps family, perhaps as you read the papers, perhaps as you see something of or hear something of declining numbers in churches. There's a sense that increasingly Western Europe in particular is turning its back on God, and we see the trickle-down effects of that. That's true internationally, that's true nationally. That's, in fact, that's true locally. The, the Oxford Mail a few years ago wrote an article about Oxford being the agnostic capital of the UK. One-third of the city has no religion at all. Oxford has the highest percentage of non-believers per population in the country. Maybe in one sense that's a, that's a positive thing because it's just folk who would have called themselves Christians in the past and we may have said maybe just cultural Christians. Maybe they're not prepared to label themselves in that way anymore. Maybe it gives us a clearer picture of the way things are. But you see, just as the world that was made through him did not recognize him, well, so now. Which all in all means we see hostility to the gospel in John, we see it in the papers. Maybe even because of the pride in our hearts, we see it in ourselves too. A hostility that means his own did not receive him. See, the Bible tells us there was a specific nation chosen by God, prepared for centuries for this very moment, blessed with the promises of God, blessed with the scriptures from God, Promises that they would be a great people, that they would have a land they would enjoy. And he came to those people in that place, and yet they missed him. They did not receive him. Crowds came because his public ministry flourished. But then crowds came as he was betrayed and denied and deserted and mocked and crucified and killed on a cross. In fact, in many ways, if you know John's gospel, you will see... Something of the illustration of that being worked out. This first chapter gives us a, a top line, a contents page of what's to come. You see conflict after conflict after conflict going through John. In chapter 5, Jesus claims to have been given power to, for life and for judgment. And so they want to kill him. In chapter 8, Jesus claims to have been around before Abraham to be God incarnate. And so they want to kill him. And if those who are waiting for him reject him, 
if those who should have known better in one sense, maybe we're thinking, is the mission failed? Is there much hope for optimism? He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him, did not recognize him. And yet actually John turns it on his head. And those who should have been expecting him miss him. But those whom we least expect end up receiving him. You see, some do become children of God. Some do and become his children, verse 12 to 13. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of a human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. You see, it's not all bad news to those who do receive him, to those who do believe in his name. Well, it is those people who can become part of his family, his children even. There's this swap that happens. Um, the early church father, Augustine, put it, uh, sorry, Athanasius put it like this. He said, he became what we are, that he might make us what he is. He condescends and lowers himself to us that we might be raised up to be a part of his family, to be joined to him by faith. He takes on flesh and a name and a face and becomes a man that we might be a part of his family. Again, John unpacks this later on. Chapter 17, just hours before he will die on the cross, Jesus prays for all Christians around the world and all Christians down the ages. That as they trust in him, in one sense, they'll be taken into the inner life of the Trinity. Sharing in the unity and the glory that God the Son has known since the world began. For all eternity. He became what we are. That he might make us what he is. Or again, look down at verse 12. It's extraordinary. He gave the right to become children of God, John says. Right is a really strong word. In verse 12, he freely gives me what I don't deserve, what I can never deserve, and then he insists it is my, my right. That is grace. And it's all, all who believe in him. Again, you'll see that in John's gospel. You'll see it colored in for us. You see it with the proverbial professor Nicodemus, privileged in chapter 3. In fact, it's with him that we learn about becoming a child of God, being born again. Privileged Nicodemus in chapter 3, and then chapter 4, the unnamed outcast Samaritan woman. Marginalized. It's all who believe in him. Look around you. It's a, it's a broad family that Jesus gathers. Could be broader. But children for the Father from many backgrounds, many stories, many countries, many languages. Children born, again, not of natural descent. That is, it's nothing to do with expectation or bloodline or ethnic background anymore. It's something different going on. Whatever era we are living in, there's, that's always an, an encouragement for the outsider, isn't it? The children born not of natural descent would mean all the non-Jewish population looking in and reading John's gospel, they are not excluded. They are able to join in. Even they can become children of God now. 
These days, it's likely to be a different crowd, a different in-crowd, and therefore a different out-crowd. Maybe that's an encouragement to anybody who isn't a Westerner, if people still think that Christianity is a Western religion. Maybe it's an encouragement from anybody who, who isn't from the right background or, or didn't quite fit in or, or an encouragement from anybody with a history or skeletons in their closet or whatever it might be. It's for all, it's for all who receive him. He gave the right to become children of God. There are no in crowds and out crowds. What matters now is simply how you relate to Jesus. And it's worth saying as well that it's how you relate to Jesus too. It's not a question of your family or your parents and their faith, your lineage, your background. Your... It's what you believe. There's a, um, there's a fascinating encounter that the evangelist Billy Graham had. Um, he was speaking at a mission in Australia, in Sydney. And they had him on the radio as part of this mission. He was giving various talks and various lectures, and people can come and engage. And they had him on the radio. And a question came through that asked him this. Dr. Graham, if you died tonight, he said, how sure are you that you would go to heaven? And Billy Graham said, I'm certain that if I died tonight, I would go and be with the Lord Jesus. And you know, the switchboards were jammed with complaints. One person said, I couldn't believe my ears. How arrogant of anyone to say they were certain of going to heaven. Isn't that striking? Why did people react in that way? Well, because they believed you get to heaven through, through being good rather than a relationship with God. It's a very popular belief. And so when Billy Graham said, I, I'm certain I'm going to heaven, they thought he was saying, I, I, I'm good enough, I've earned my place. And yet John says, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Billy Graham wasn't being arrogant. He simply knew how it was that you knew God that you believe in him, you trust him. You are reborn, you become one of his children. And that is how you can be humbly sure of entering heaven. It's not through, through what we do or notching up enough points or whatever it might be. It's simply through knowing him, being born again. He doesn't want us to turn over a new leaf or try a bit harder or give a bit more to charity or work at your faults or whatever it might be. He, he gives himself to you in the form of his son. Which, of course, is why Jesus needs to be at the heart of our Christmas. We have a, um, we have a phrase in the church office as we share prayer points. It probably comes up most weeks. Um, it's everybody needs grace all the time. Everybody needs grace all the time. Maybe that's something for us to chew on and to reflect as we consider Christmas, as you try and get ready, as your family winds you up, as you don't get the presents you want, as the presents that you choose for them are clearly unwanted, 
everybody needs grace all the time. That's something at the heart of Christmas, isn't it? If you're here and you wouldn't call yourself a believer or you're not quite sure, I'd love to urge you to accept that present that God says you need this Christmas. Accept that gift. Don't do what we so often do at Christmas, or at least we do in our houses. You, at the start of December, get the manger and the nativity scene out of the paraphernalia in the attic next to Barney's room, and you decorate it and you arrange it and you look at it for a month or so, and sometimes the Lord Jesus goes missing, and then you pop it back in the box and put it away again till next year. To, to do that is not to receive him, to not recognize him. If you're someone who wouldn't call yourself a Christian, I'd love to urge you to, to receive that gift this year. To those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And if you are here as a believer, can I urge you to please watch out for Christmas Eve at 10 p.m.? Watch out for the stress and the hassle and the busy, busy, busy and the way we try and cram things into Christmas in such a way that we end up doing Christmas without Christ. We forget the grace that he offers us. Let's have a Christmas full of grace this year. Let me lead us in prayer. Father in heaven, there's something profoundly human and fleshly in the way that we, we move away from grace. We get distracted by other things. We seek to try and earn your favor in the wrong kind of ways. We, we think it's about us, and, and yet we see in this passage at the heart of what we need is a person. It's the Lord Jesus. It's the word who takes on flesh, who comes from you with grace and truth. Help us to remember that everybody needs grace all the time. Help us to remember that at Christmas. But please, might we increasingly be a church where we remember that day by day, week by week, month by month, year by year. And where our hearts drift onto other things, might you cause them to drift back to you. Wake us up in our drift that we might focus again on the Lord Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.